Everybody, good to see you tonight. Glad you're here. Welcome to Bible study. Uh, we're going to take a few moments and pray, and then we will head forward into our Bible study time. So let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, just the, the power of your Holy Spirit tonight. I thank you that uh, you fill us. I thank you empower us. I thank you give knowledge, understanding, wisdom. I pray that tonight you would. Help us as we open our hearts and our minds to receive of you, to receive truth, to receive, Lord God, revelation, to receive understanding. I pray, God, that we would just see you moving in our hearts, our lives toward change and toward growth. God, I pray that there'd be things tonight that we would hear and learn that we had not thought of before. And I pray that kind of revelation uh, to come forth tonight and to for us to know that kind of revelation tonight. So, God, we ask for your help. We ask, Lord God, and we give you thanks for your presence and we give you thanks for this time, this space, this moment. We ask you, God, move. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, let's open up to the book of Ezra. Ezra chapter 7. Ezra 7. As you're opening up, just want to give opportunity. I haven't done this in a while. Uh, anybody have any questions? Like something, maybe you're reading the Bible, something was going on, and you had a question about something, and uh, you want to ask it? I can do my best to try to answer it in kind of a short form, but at least to, to speak something to it. Anybody have anything you'd like to ask? Sid? I couldn't hear, I couldn't hear you, Sid. I'm sorry. Yeah? Couldn't hear you again. Anybody here, Sid? What are you saying? Oh, you didn't understand it? From Hebrews 13. Do you remember which part of it it was? Give me one of those bibles. Okay, let's look at it real quick. So Hebrews 13, was it right at the beginning, like the first couple of verses? Okay. So the question was, looking at Hebrews chapter 13, it says, Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. 
Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. By doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Right there? Okay. Um, well, what this is saying, my understanding of it, is that uh, we should be people that show hospitality to people we don't know. And, and the idea behind it is the writer of Hebrews trying to tell people, was like, well, sometimes you're going to show hospitality to people you don't know, but they're not really going to be people. They're going to be angels that appear to be people. And so we're allowed, you know, if we're just consistent about our hospitality, we're consistent about showing that kind of hospitality to people, that there'll be occasions where we will actually show hospitality to an angel without even knowing about it. But it's just a part of our life. Um, and there, there's been, uh, I have one example of that in, from my life uh, where I picked up a hitchhiker one time. Now, this is going to sound crazy, but this happened. I was living out in Lockport, out in western New York. I, it was a rainy night, pouring rain, dark, you know, cold rain. And there was a guy walking on the side of the road, and he, he flagged me like he wanted to ride. Now, I'm sitting in my car, I'm warm, I'm dry, he's wet, he's cold. And so I, I made a decision to go ahead and pull over for that. And he got in all wet and everything, had a conversation with him, and all of a sudden he wasn't there. Like, you know, and I'm not crazy like that, I just, that's what happened. And, uh, and so that was one of those moments that I believe was something like this where I, it, it happened and that was what took place. I was a young believer. Um, I was at a stage where I was just believing everything God said. Okay? I didn't doubt anything. I was just like, this is what I believe. This is what I'm doing. This is how I'm living. And I, I think it was just one of those moments like that. The real function behind the verse, though, is for us to be consistent. And that's what it's saying. It's like, we need to show hospitality. We need to show love for strangers, people we don't know, and continue to do that. And, and there's something really supernatural about that. And God bless us supernaturally, too. All right. Anybody else? All right. Well, thanks for the question, Sid. And uh, let's go to Ezra, chapter 7, and I need a volunteer to read verse 24. Alright, so this is a, a decree being made by Artaxerxes. And uh, Ezra, if you know the story of Ezra, Ezra was the cupbearer to the king. And uh, the term cupbearer is not used anymore, obviously. And it was a very important position within the kingdom. And whoever was the cupbearer was the most trusted, in a sense. Because it was the cupbearer that stood in between the king and those that would try to kill the king or make the king sick. And so the cupbearer was an esteemed position of someone that 
It'd be someone that, you know, in the old movies, you'd see that where they're going to try a sip before the king does, or they're going to eat something before the king does. And he was that buffer between the king and whoever didn't like him. And on the other side of that, because he was at the king's side all the time, he was often also a confidant of the king and somebody that he trusted to speak to. And so if you read the story of, of, of Ezra and Nehemiah, you understand that between the two of them, one was a priest and one was a cupbearer, between the two of them, that this was an esteemed place for them, that Nehemiah had come to the king, he said, okay, I'm your cupbearer and I'm going to speak this to you. And, and he asked him a question that, you know, the king noticed that Nehemiah had been, uh, his face was downcast, I think was how it described, because he's around him all the time. Think about that. Like, you know somebody well enough. Think about people that you know really well. Can't you tell when something's wrong? I mean, most of the time. And so Nehemiah, the cupbearer, had come before the king, and there was the king, and the king said, well, what's wrong with you? And remember, this is more than just a, a, a job. This is someone that they he knew. And he said, all right, well, what's wrong? And he told him, he was like, well, the city where I come from and my people are are in ruin. And the walls of the city have been torn down and everything is in ruin. And so uh, this is what's happened. And so the king, Artaxerxes, he looked at him and he said, all right, well, I'm going to send you. And that's how much he cared for him. I'm going to send you back to your home. I'm going to send you back to Jerusalem. Now this is the same kingdom that had destroyed Jerusalem. The Babylonians, they had 70 years before this, they had destroyed Jerusalem. And yet, this, this relationship between Nehemiah and the king was such that he, he, he saw what was going on with him. And he's like, all right, well, I'm going to send you back to rebuild the walls. I'm going to send you back as a governor over the land. I'm going to send you back as someone that you, you're going to have the treasury, my treasury. You're going to have the materials that I have. You're going to be able to go back and you're going to be able to rebuild this thing. Ezra, his concern, Nehemiah's concern was for the walls and for the city. And Ezra's concern was for the temple. And so he also was approved to go back. And Artaxerxes, in, he called it divine favor, he called it whatever you want to call it, but he also was approved to, to go back. And I think the two are related. I believe that. I believe these two books, these two instances where the king looked at their situation and he said, all right, well, I'm going to send you back to rebuild the walls. I'm going to send you back to rebuild the city. And I'm going to send you back to rebuild the temple. I think they're directly related to one another. All right? And so the idea behind that is that Ezra, as he's taking this proclamation from the king, he's going to get to Jerusalem and there's going to be people that oppose them. There's going to be people that... Uh, are, are going to come against them. There's going to be people that, and, and you, if you read the stories, you see that. You know, they describe Nehemiah as he's rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem and they're rebuilding the city, that the workers that he had, one arm that they were building, and, and they, they, they were building in one hand, trying to rebuild the wall, but in the other hand, they had a sword because they're under constant threat of attack because plenty of the enemies of Jerusalem didn't want that city rebuilt. To the point that they were lying about what they were doing. They were sending emissaries back to Babylon with letters lying about what was going on in the city. They were trying everything they could to stop that. 
The same is true of the temple, that people didn't want that rebuilt. They didn't want that place of worship rebuilt, and they opposed that, and they continued to oppose that. And so here you have Artaxerxes spelling it out in writing so that Ezra could take it back. He spelled it out in writing so Nehemiah could take it back. And so anybody that they passed, anyone that they met, anyone that they were coming against, they would know that they were fully backed by this massive kingdom of Babylonia, the Chaldeans. And they were one of the largest kingdoms of that time and one of the richest kingdoms of that time. That these guys who are doing this are fully backed by us. And and so you read the words at the beginning of this verse in the in if you have an older version, it says this is that we certify you. And those words are a legal term and they're very emphatic. Very emphatic that this is the way it is. Now it's one thing to read that, say a king writes that. I just want to encourage you that there's things in the Bible that are very emphatic too. Now you read things that Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you. That's emphatic. When you see words repeated, there's an emphasis on those. And and so when Jesus would say things like, Oh, verily, verily, well that means you should pay attention to that. And you see things in the Old Testament and you see words repeated, then you should pay attention to that. That if, if words are repeated in, in Hebrew or words are repeated in the language that the Old Testament is written in, then there is an emphasis being placed on those and we need to take heed of those. Just like in the same way a person would read this. Let's say you're going on the road, somebody stops you and says, what are you guys doing? Well, here's the letter from the king. And the first person reads that, that we certify you. Meaning, this is emphatic. This is something that is the fact of the matter. And so reading that, you read that and you say, all right. We had a, a, a kind of a um, experience like this. We were trying to leave Senegal right when the pandemic started. And what had happened was in Senegal, they had closed the borders of every province in Senegal. And we happened to be in the southernmost part of the country uh, we couldn't cross through the Gambia, which is another country. It's like a finger sticking in the middle of Senegal. And so we couldn't cross through there, which is the direct route to get to where we needed to go. We had to go around it. And so I figured it out one day. We were looking at it. And we're like, all right, well, we've got to get from Ziggenshore, where we were, all these provinces going around the Gambia all the way up to where the airport is on the other side of Dakar. Right, now, I've taken that trip, and that trip sometimes has taken 20 to 24 hours by car. When you're in traffic, you have things going on, the car breaks down, as it always does, and all the things that take place with that, that can be like a 20, 24-hour trip. Not to mention, I, I, I have it written here somewhere, but we had to cross, I believe, 13 provinces in order to get there. And at the border of every province, there was a military checkpoint making sure that people weren't traveling between provinces because that had been forbidden by the government. So we needed a decree. So we went over 
to the big shot political offices in Ziegenshore, and we met with the one guy. He was the governor of the province. We figured we'll start at the top. He's the highest ranking official that was in the Ziegenshore province. He's the governor. He's the guy. Hey, could you give us a decree so we can get out of here? No. No. You need to go see this other guy. He's the prefect. What's a prefect? We don't have prefects. I don't know what the prefect is. I guess he's like in charge of a smaller portion of the province. And so I went to see the prefect. Of course, the prefect, because everybody that's in any kind of political office, they have power over you. And kind of in this kind of a country, you see that more pronounced. And so anywhere you go, if you want to see somebody who's important or at least self-important, you have to wait. And so I went to see the governor, had to wait. So I just waited, waited, and I had this guy with me, a real nice guy. He's pastor uh, of the local church, but he was there to help me out with some uh, translation or anything that needed to happen. And so he came with me, so me and his name's Ufi. Me and Ufi sat in the governor's office, and we sat in the governor's office, and we sat in the governor's office, and people went in, they came out. That person went in, came out. All these people, the governor left the door open a couple times. He's yucking it up with guys in the office. I don't know what's going on. We're just sitting there waiting. And so finally, he sends word out through his secretary, you got to go see the prefect. We never even met the governor. I just saw him through a crack in the door. That's as close as I got to him. So then we're going to go see the prefect. And so we went up to see the prefect, and they didn't want to see Ufi, so it was just me. And so I waited, went in the office, the guy interviewed me, he took all my paperwork, he's like, yeah, okay, yeah, I've done a couple of these today, because people have to get up to the airport, so let me look into it, and uh, I'll get back to you, wait outside. So now we're waiting out in the sun, because he doesn't have a real office, he's just on the side of a building. So I went to see Ufi. So I was talking to Ufi for a little while, then they kicked Ufi out of the courtyard, so that I couldn't even have anybody to talk to. Then the prefect, he left his office, got in a car, and left the compound. I still didn't have my stuff. So finally somebody called me in, they had all the paperwork, they handed me the paperwork, all set. So we had all these pieces of paper with each of our names on them with an official, uh, official stamp on it from the prefect saying we could travel from Ziegenshore all the way to the airport north of Dakar in Chess during this date and time. And you know what? It worked. We get stopped at, well, with the appropriate amount of bribe money, it worked. Because you get stopped at the checkpoints, and, and the guy would look at the papers like, all right, now some of them were just go ahead, other ones you had to kind of grease the wheel a little bit, but we got through, made it all the way to the car, all the way to the airport. Now, you didn't think about this, right? We're just stuck in Senegal, so you think, all right, well, how are they going to get a flight out? There's no flights. So we got on a, a State Department flight. That's how we got back. A, a plane, it was a jet with no windows, all right? It was a cargo plane. That apparently, I looked up the name of it on the side of it. it. The State Department uses that to transport dead bodies out of war zones back to the United States. That's what the plane's used for. 
And they had stuck some seats in there with coolers along the side with bottled water in it and then porta potties bolted to the floor in the back. Yeah. That's how we got back. I'm not complaining. I'm just saying that's how we got back. One flight. The car, Washington, D.C. Where you go from Washington, D.C. is up to you. And that's the only time I've ever been in Washington, D.C. that the streets were just empty. Because the pandemic is like the first, like March, end of March, the, that first year. And there was just nobody out. It was like, it was like, it's like, it must be how the president feels when he travels. Because all the roads appeared to be closed because we were the only car on the road. We were the only car in the airport parking lot, in the parking garage, one car. We're walking out the door, one car. It was Jeannie's car. Out, out, in, the, out in the parking garage, hopped in, got on the road, and it was like all the roads had been closed, straight shot to Syracuse. Never been that fast in my life to get from D.C. to here. But those little pieces of paper... The prefect stamped. I don't know if he signed them. I don't care. It worked. And it opened the doors. And we got to where we needed to go. And we got back. Thankful. And I look at that and I see how, you know, you got Nehemiah, the cupbearer, speaking to the king. You got Ezra speaking and saying, this is what we need. And the king supplying that. And so, and there's a certain amount of favor in that. There's a certain amount of divine favor in that. And I, and I, I, I think I appreciate this story more now than I did three years ago because of our experience. So, uh, what you see written here is an exemption, and it's just part of the the letter that the king sent with him to sit with Ezra. And and he's describing an exemption here. And the exemption was for anybody that ministers in the temple. And that was a pretty large number of people that would minister in the temple. And you think about this over time. You think about this, how this would add up over time. But what he did was he took the the ministers of the temple, whoever they would be, and they went from priest to the guy who guards the door. Because those were all workers in the temple. So you had a priesthood, but then you had all the Levites that had all the kind of dirty jobs that, that kept the, that keeps the temple functioning. And so everybody had a job, and anybody that had a job were exempt from all taxes. So, so all the ministers, and that word literally means worshipers, all the worshipers were discharged from taxes. Now, uh, I'm only going to share this as a historical thing, but uh, people wonder. It's like we were at, uh, where were we at? Moe's. And, and we went to give them our tax-exempt number because we eat at Moe's sometimes on Sundays. And so we presented the, the person with the tax-exempt number, and they didn't know what to do with it. That's pretty normal. But they were able to modify what they were doing and sort of accommodate it. But there was a delivery guy there. I don't know if he was a Grubhub guy or he was a uh, Moe's delivery guy. I think he was Grubhub or something. But he got all indignant that churches don't have to pay taxes, which I thought was kind of funny. Because it's kind of a common thing in the United States that people, there's such things as nonprofits, you know. And, and as far as I'm concerned, if Syracuse University... 
big old Syracuse University, and, and you're going to tell me they don't make a ton of money. They're a nonprofit, all right? But they make a ton of money. I mean, you just look at TV rights for basketball and football. You got a ton of money going in there. Then you got individual tuition rates. How much is the SU right now for an individual for a year? Like 50 grand or more? 68 grand, whatever it is. It's like, tell me they're not making money. Of course they're making money. But there's a status that's given to them. I ain't judging them. I'm just telling you. There's a status that's given to them as their nonprofit because of their mission, because of what they do. And there's all kinds of nonprofits that exist in our country because as a country we've chosen to value certain things. We've chosen to value certain missions of certain organizations and, and to say, okay, well, you don't have to pay taxes. You have to apply to the IRS. We had to apply to the IRS. We have a letter of determination from the IRS. We had to apply to the state. We have a we have a, a form that we use from the state, a certificate from the state. All those things happen. And then you got this guy who's a Grubhub delivery guy. Nothing wrong with Grubhub. Nothing wrong with this guy, I guess. But just 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 completely ignorant of how things work. You know, because I mean, if you're school, okay. If you're a political party. Tax exempt. It depends on what your mission is. It has more to do with mission than it has to do with anything else. And so, long time ago, whoever was in charge back then, they said, all right, well, we, we believe in the mission of schools. We believe in the mission of political parties. We believe in the mission of churches. And so, we're going to make them tax exempt. Now, this isn't unique to the United States. In fact... In fact, you go back a little ways and you begin to see that this was very usual, very usual with the heathens, which I'll call the heathens in kind of in a loving way, but you know, the heathens. Who do I mean by the heathens? Well, like Egypt. If you're a priest in Egypt or you're involved in some kind of temple worship in Egypt, you didn't pay taxes. Or what about, well, Babylonia? Because he's the one issuing the decree. The Magi didn't pay taxes in Babylonia. It was just a normal practice. Even going to England, and you look at the English people and the Druids. The Druids didn't pay taxes. So even among the heathen, this was a common practice. And it was just something that they did. Something that was a part of their culture. Now, I don't want to major on this. I'm just giving you this kind of as a historical background. In case a Grubhub guy ever asks you about this, okay? You got a little, got a little more ammo here. All right. Whatever. Not that you want to get in an argument with a Grubhub guy, but whatever, you know. Anybody that handles your food, a little tip here, a little pro tip. Never get in an argument with anybody who handles your food, all right? I'm just telling you, that's a bad mistake. That's a bad mistake. And, and if I'm at a table... With somebody that starts arguing with the wait staff, they need to shut up. Because I'm at the table. And I'm going to eat or drink something at this table, so stop it. Stop it. I worked in a number of restaurants, you know, kind of growing up in high schools particularly. I worked in a number of restaurants even before high school. I was kind of underage working as a dishwasher. Mm -mm. No? You ever seen the movie Waiting? Yeah? Yeah. From Monday Cheese. I mean, you know, it's just bad. Whatever. Mm. 
So, I digress. And so, in, in these other cultures, you know, it's, it's just commonplace. And it was something that was just a part of who they were. So, what do we really learn from this? And that this is where I really want to get at. He makes this decree. And the decree was from that time forward. That as long as the Babylonians, as long as the Babylonian Empire was in power, that these people that were going back, to build this temple and to man this temple and to worship in this temple would not have to pay taxes. And so in a way, he took them and he elevated them to his own, uh, to the status of his own magi and the status of his own people that were wise men and that were religious leaders and that were spiritual people in his own kingdom. There was a recognition that took place after 70 years of captivity, that there was a certain wisdom that God had put into his people. And he could see it. Again, how are these related? you got Nehemiah, the cupbearer, his most trusted servant, is a Hebrew. And so, there's a trust that had been built, there was a life that had been lived, they had seen God moving. Talking about Babylonians. And the king. And so, here we have this proclamation. And so he sends them back with this proclamation. And, and I want you to see it. I want you to see honor there. I want you to see honor. And I also want you to see freedom to attend to the matters of God. And so... In our sense, in who we are, God calls us, and, and throughout the New Testament, there's this, there's this kind of mixture of worlds. And it is a mixture of worlds. But understand, it was a mixture of worlds in the Babylonian Empire. It was a mixture of worlds that the, the Jewish people living among the Babylonians, that they had to make a living. They had to get along. And yet they were called to something else. They had other values. They had other religious practices. And there were other things that were going on there. And there was this, there was this mixture of worlds that was taking place. Well, we have a mixture of worlds. That, that we're called to a kingdom that no one else can see. No one can really see the kingdom that we're a part of. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven. Jesus proclaimed it. And he even said, you look in Luke chapter 17, talking about the kingdom. And he said, people will say, well, where is it? Where is this kingdom? And he said, well, you can't find it. You can't look here, there. You can't look at this, that. That's not really what the kingdom's about. And Jesus kind of boiled it down. He's like, because people are going to want to measure it. They're going to want to see it. They're going to want to describe it. There are going to be people that are going to be able to find it, physically find it, so they can get some kind of a handle on what it is. Jesus said, they'll look and they'll look and they'll look, but they'll never find it. Because the kingdom of God, and this was his answer, is in you, in me, in us. That's where the kingdom exists. And so understanding the kingdom of God like that is to understand something has to be set right in us if we're actually going to live it. Something has to be set right in us because there are other stresses and other things going on outside of us 
negotiations that are taking place outside of us that are just going to continue to happen as long as we live in this world. So things have to be set in here. If that kingdom is going to live and be manifest in any way through our heart or through our lives, it has to be set. And I think that's an important distinction for us as God's people in the age that we live in. That we're not going to rebuild a physical temple. There's no stone structure that we need to rebuild. And we really believe that. When when we were looking for a space to meet in, I had no inclination to try to find a church. Like a building? You understand what I'm saying? Because we came from Rockefeller United Methodist over on Tecumseh. You know, Nottingham Road over there. And we were renting from them. They charged us a whopping, I think it was $15 a week to rent from them. And we could have stayed there. That's a nice church building, like a Methodist church building. It had the big arches and the windows. And they let us do pretty much anything we wanted. They had the, the kids' area and plenty of room to play. So our kids had plenty of room to play over there and everything. But we didn't want to meet there. We just met there. We were more comfortable at the American Legion on Dell Street than we were over there. It just didn't fit. We just couldn't figure it out. Because they had pews. We couldn't move them. We couldn't turn in our chairs and stuff. It was just weird. And they had a platform. And so you're elevated above. And it's hard to be on the same level then if you're elevated. Get it? People would come and they'd feel like the need to, oh, i got to dress up a certain way because they're going to a church building. And so when we were looking for a space, it was not to be that. It was not to be something traditional because we're, we're not, that's not how we're living. The New Testament sense uh, of who we are, those people met from house to house in the book of Acts. It wasn't until, you know, it wasn't until... Constantine, that the people living and meeting in the Roman Empire had buildings because he did them a favor. You see, he took some of their buildings and he converted them into churches and said, meet in here. Well, you know what? The church did great for a few hundred years before that. And if you know me and you've known me a while, I'm into that primitive stuff, man. I love it. I love that kind of primitive faith. And we had an opportunity. We could have bought a building over in Eastwood. There's an old school building, part of an old Catholic church over there. A Catholic school had a gym in it. I love the gym. But it's not us. And they, they wanted like 50000 for it. I mean, <laughs> we'd have paid it off by now. No, we'll pay exorbitant rent to stay right here in the middle of Westcott. Thanks. Yeah, because it's where we're supposed to be. And And to be able to... And we were able to design and build a space for what we needed. And that's what we did. We had a, this is an old grocery store, at least a third of it. It was just completely empty. There was nothing in here. We put up all the walls. We put up all the partitions. We were able to design it the way we wanted. We built it ourselves. Downstairs, we designed it the way we wanted. The underground, we designed in here the way we wanted. We were able to do what we needed to do. Because that made more sense. You see, we're not going back to build the temple. The temple that the New Testament describes is you, your life, 
your heart, who you are. Don't you know that you're the temple of the Holy Spirit? That's what the Bible asks. And the answer, I hope, is yes, that you're the temple. You're not made of stone. You're not made of brick. But you're living. And, and, and you're breathing. And that's what it's about. You're being built up. I'm being built up. We're being built up. And the way that's going to happen in our hearts, the way it's going to happen in our lives, is if we're free. If we're free. And I'm not making a political statement because there's plenty of people living in, in and I mean as communist China, in underground churches, living, not knowing if they're going to get raided or if anybody's going to come in. Christians still disappear over there. We have a missionary there. And the way that people have to live is that you don't, it's like Fight Club, man. You don't talk about Fight Club. And yet that church, the, the Chinese church, the underground church, has continued to grow, it continues to expand over these past 20, 30, 40, 50 years. The state-run churches, the ones that they allow to have the buildings, are just dead. And they just are. We've been to those churches, and they're dead. We've also been to the underground churches, and they're alive. And it's not a question of what country I live in. It's not a question of, of whatever, you know, whatever system of government is over, over us. It's a question of what's in here. And for free, for free, we're going to grow. For living in liberty, we're going to grow. And that can't depend on what's going on around you. That has to depend on what's inside of you. And so if God's building his temple, that means he's building you. And in order for that to happen, there needs to be a certain freedom that takes place in us, a certain freedom that we live in, a certain freedom that we accept, we choose, and we allow for in our lives to grow. You see, the weapons of our warfare, and I was talking about this the other day, but yesterday, the weapons of our warfare aren't carnal. They're not of flesh, but they're mighty to the pulling down of stronghold. You think about what God calls us to do. Um, and even if you, you look at the idea of a clergy or a ministry, which we don't really adhere to really strongly here, uh, we, we don't adhere to that whole idea, that division that became common in the church between a clergy and a laity. That doesn't make a lot of sense in our model because we're all expected. To, well, let's look at some of the things. Faithfulness. You're expected to be faithful. How about to proclaim or to teach what you know? There's an expectation for that. That's why we have a five-minute teaching every Sunday. We have a five-minute teaching during our kinships. Because everybody has something to teach. Everybody has something to share. Everybody has something that's on their heart and, and that they can bring forth and it can bless other people. Sometimes in, on Sundays, our most powerful moment of the service is the five-minute teaching. Sometimes on Sundays, our most powerful moment of the service is a 30-second share time or a share time where somebody proclaims something and people are touched and people are changed by that. That's expected. People walk into church sometimes. They don't know who's in charge. Good. 
Hopefully it's God. Hopefully it's the Holy Spirit is in charge. These people come back two, three weeks, they don't know who's in charge. And they'll ask eventually because they want to know. You know, we every now and then we get people in that want money, right? So they come into the church and they're trying to figure out who's in charge so they can hit them up for money. And I just send them to Mary. <laughs> Why don't you hit her up? See what happens. <laughs> She's a tough cookie. Yeah. So, okay, so teaching, proclamation, faithfulness. I mean, you think about prophecy. Who's supposed to prophesy in the church? Everybody. Everybody. We speak that over everybody. We lay hands on everybody. That gift is poured out on people in this place. Just poured out. Like crazy. It's been that way from the very beginning. Is that, is that God just continually pours it out, but there's an expectation that He's gonna do that. You get it? There's an expectation that you're gonna teach. There's an expectation that you're gonna share. There's an expectation that you're gonna proclaim. There's an expectation that you're gonna prophesy. There's an expectation you're gonna be faithful. Prayer. There's an expectation that you're gonna pray. Service. There's an expectation that you're gonna serve. And you know what? Another part of this is, is the whole idea of suffering. And to be a people that can suffer when we're called to do it. And we learn to suffer with one another when those times come. And I'm not speaking that over us, I'm just saying they come. Those times come. And there are certain times that come where we do suffer as individuals. Sometimes we suffer as families. Sometimes we suffer as a church. But those times do come. We need to learn how to do that together. And so whatever your view is of this, we're all about erasing that divide. And I know I have a certain function here, and I, I take my function seriously. Pete has a certain function here. He takes his function seriously. Martha has a certain function here. She takes her function seriously. We have kinship leaders. They have their function. We all have our certain functions that we participate in. And we do, and we choose to serve in that way. But that doesn't make anyone any better or any stronger or anything else than the other. We are who we are, and we work together as a body. I mean, literally, what did Paul say? Can the eye say to the foot, I don't need you? No. Or the hand, or whatever it is, the ear, to the mouth. No. We gotta do what we gotta do. We gotta be who we are. We gotta fall after what God has for us. And we gotta allow for that. That I'm different than you, but we're together. I have maybe a different function than you do all the time, but we're together. You can do that. I'll do this. We're together. Oneness is not sameness. Okay? Just because we're one doesn't mean we're all the same. Thank God. Because that's boring. If we were all the same, that's so boring. If we all dress the same, that's boring. I mean, we need some cheetah pants in here, alright? 
Just not me wearing them, all right? <laughs> See, I don't want to wear those, but they look good on you. I mean, that's good. Right, Alan? Yeah, see, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> so, so we allow for differences as we work together. And what happens is, is that part of my job, you want to hear what my real job is? As far as I'm concerned, I have a couple of different things I do. But one of the main things I do on a daily basis is to make it so you are less encumbered. All right? That's part of my job. A big part of my job is that you're free to do what God's called you to do. And so I have to go about what I do to make sure that you're free to do what God's called you to do. So in other words, we're not living in a, a body of believers where somebody's judging you all the time. We're not living in a body of believers where somebody's trying to force you into a certain mold. We're not living in a body of believers where somebody doesn't think that what you're doing is important. That's not what we're doing. And so somebody along the way has to ensure that model is followed. Has to ensure that model is followed in the sense that people can be free to do what God's calling them to do. Because I'll tell you, something will kill a church or kill that kind of a way of doing things fast is judgment. When you start feeling like you're getting judged because you're doing something that's different, because you're doing something that maybe the other person isn't doing, because you're doing something that they don't understand, because you're doing something that maybe doesn't look right, doesn't sound right, or whatever the case may be, you will stop doing that. And that's the case in most churches where people stop doing what God's called them to do. They mold themselves into a sameness. And then you got one guy, two people, three people doing all the work. Because everybody's afraid to step out and do anything. If you came out of a church background, I hope you can recognize what I'm talking about. hope you can see it. You may never have thought about it that way, but I hope you can begin to see that. That that's part of the driving force that keeps people doing nothing. And so that's part of my job. That's a big part of my job. It's to create an atmosphere, a situation, a place where you can step up and you can step out and you can do what God's called you to do. So that you can feel, I can prophesy on Sunday. You can feel, I can prophesy at kinship. You can feel, I can go lay hands on that person and pray for healing for them. You can feel that. You can feel like, I can stand up and I can share something. Or, or I can stand up for my five-minute teaching. I'm going to lead everybody in the hokey pokey. Alright, well you should be feel free that you can do that. And that's important. Because on the face value, you think about, well, what does the hokey pokey have to do with anything? I don't know, but it's pretty silly and it's pretty demonstrative. And so if we're all standing up doing the hokey pokey, maybe we feel a little better around each other. Demonstrating whatever it is God has for us. Or God wants to do through us. What if He, what if He has for you to dance? What are you going to do? You can't do the hokey pokey in a prescribed way? You think you're going to just get up and dance when God calls you to do that? Probably not. How about raising your hands? You'll be able to do that? If you can't do the hokey pokey and turn yourself around? Probably not. 
So I want to, I just, I really want to emphasize, and I believe this, that it requires, and this is what you see happening here, through the, the proclamation of the king of Babylonia, he's providing for these people to be able to travel, to be able to, they gave him the money, whatever's necessary, he's provided for them to rebuild the walls, the city, and the temple. And he's provided for you, for your temple to be built too. Whatever you need. And I believe that as, you're, as you look at it in that way, it's like he's behind you building your temple. And he wants you built up. And he wants you growing. And he wants you healing. And he wants you to be a person that can be used by him. That's what his desire is. And if he desires that, then he's going to provide for it. I believe He desires it, and I believe He provides for that in your life. Whatever's needed, whatever's necessary, He is providing for it. And He gives you permission to do it. That's what He does. And in our walk, that, that's that idea that, yeah, we're, we're the kingdom, but it's the kingdom in you. In our walk, it's the temple, but it's the temple that you are. And He's providing for everything that is needed and He's giving permission for you to grow and for you to become. More God. More God. Somebody look up Matthew chapter 17. Let's bring it to the New Testament here. Matthew chapter 17. I want you to read verses 24 through 27. I'm going to just share this, uh, this this tax. It was a tribute. It's not like a tax like the government imposes. That wasn't the kind of thing it was. It was something that was part of the temple. And even from way back in the times after the return, the time we're looking at with Ezra and Nehemiah, they established it so that every person or was asked to contribute to the temple. And so they were to bring a certain amount of money and contribute that for the work of the temple for whatever they needed, like salt they needed, or uh, if they needed supplies, or whatever it would be that they were, they said, okay, well, if you come and contribute. And they were invited to contribute to that. And so over the years, even though it wasn't a law, this was not a law of any kind, but over the years, it became more of a custom is that people would bring money as tribute in, in each of their towns. It would be collected, 
they'd bring the money and then it would be sent to Jerusalem to pay for certain things in the temple, whatever they would need. And so it was, in the strictest sense of the word, voluntary. And so it was interesting that these guys came up to Peter. Now, Peter was from Capernaum. And Jesus was staying with Peter. And so that's why they came up to Peter. Because Peter lived there. They knew Peter. And they knew Jesus was staying with Peter. And they were just looking for a reason to judge him. Because if something is voluntary, what's the deal? And so they didn't come in and say, oh, do you think you think Jesus will pay a little or what? You know, it was like, does he pay or not? In other words, what kind of a teacher is he? What kind of rabbi is he? He's not even going to pay the temple tax, the tribute. And they're looking for trouble. And so Peter answered, now think about this for a second. Peter answered, of course he does. Did Peter know that? No. In fact, he goes back to the house, back to his house where, where Jesus is, and you know he was about to say, do you pay the temple tax? You know that's what about, it was about to happen. But Jesus cut him off before he said that. And he asked him a question. Before he could even ask him if he paid the tribute or whatever it was, he said, he said I'm going I'm to ask you a question, Jesus said to Peter. And he asked him this question. He's like, so who pays taxes in the king's house? His family or strangers? And Peter's like, well, strangers. I mean, his family's exempt. So you're looking at, okay, the temple, it's the house of God, right? And so Jesus and all his disciples and those that would follow after him, we're called the children of God. So do we pay the tribute for the temple? That's what he was asking him. And, and Peter rightfully said, well, no, it's strangers that pay it. The, the family's exempt. And, and Jesus is like, well, we're exempt. But, so we don't cause a problem. I'm going to do a little miracle here. Sends him out, catches a fish, has money in the mouth, goes and pays it. Case closed. No problem. What do I want you to see from this? I'm not trying to do a, a teaching on the tribute. I'm not trying to do a teaching on us being the children of God. All I'm trying to say is this, is that God wants you to grow. And He wants you to grow in freedom. God wants you to grow as His temple. God wants you to grow as His people. And as His will, His desire, and His plan for your life. And as such, He will provide for that in your life. Allow Him to. Allow Him to. Allow for the miraculous. Allow for the place where your faith is activated. Allow for the supernatural existence that God has for you to live. Just allow for that. I mean, this was a very straightforward, uh, to me, a very straightforward thing. There's a tribute. It's by custom we pay it. Where's the money? Couldn't Jesus have just had the money appear in Peter's pocket? Could he have just had the money appear in his own hand and handed it to him? Well, sure he could have. But he sends him out to do something Peter did every day of his life before Jesus called him. He's a fisherman. That's what he did. Him and his brother Andrew, they were out fishing. Their father were fishermen. Probably their grandfather was a fisherman. They're all fishermen. And so he sends him out to do something he had done every 
day of his life up until the time Jesus called him. And it was through that act of him sending him out and doing the everyday, doing the familiar, doing the stuff that he was going to do all this time, that's what he was doing, sends him out to catch a fish. And it's through that that you see the provision made for the temple tax. And I want you to think about that for a second. Why the everyday? Because it is the everyday. Why the familiar? Because it is the familiar. It's not. You know, we look for the supernatural in all of these weird circumstances. All these other things that, that supposedly, oh, well, that's where the supernatural takes place. It's like when people are chasing evangelists or people are chasing prophets around the country or are making sure they get to the right meeting at the right time. No. No. And I'm not against anything like that, but that can't be our existence. We can't be chasing the supernatural like that. We need to be living it. And that has to invade the everyday. Or should invade the everyday. It should invade our lives. Because that's the provision that God has for you to grow. Allow for it. Expect it. See it. For what it is. I wonder how many miracles happen in your life that you just ignore. I don't know. How many times God supernaturally provides or God supernaturally does something and you just miss it because you're not even paying attention. You ignore it or explain it away. Well, that was a coincidence. Was it? I don't know. Might have been. I mean, because at the same time I'm saying this, understand I'm not like a crazy person. And I know the Bible says time and chance happen to us all. So if I roll up a six on a pair of dice, or a, or a die, and I roll up a six, and I do it three times in a row, does that mean God was intervening in that? No. There is a permutation where six, where three sixes can roll up one after the other. It's mathematics. And it does happen. But I'm not going to ignore when God does something. I'm just not. I'm not going to ignore his provision, even if I see it later. I've got to give him some credit for that. But to begin to recognize his provision, begin to recognize his love, begin to recognize the supernatural in the moment. That's a powerful thing. A powerful thing. And it leads us to a building in our lives building up a growth a becoming the kingdom of God is in me the kingdom of God is in you something needs to be happening I ask you to pray with me for a minute Father thanks for thanks for loving us and thanks for drawing us out, some of us some murky water. You drew us out. Some of us, you drew us out of some dark places. And here we are. I want to thank you for your divine favor. I want to thank you for your grace and for your love. I want to thank you for your mercy. And I thank you that you're all about us growing. You're all about us being built up as people, as individuals. 
You're all about changing our lives for the better. You're all about filling us with hope, mercy, forgiveness, cleansing, new days ahead. You're all about it. And I thank you for that which you're all about, you provide for. And so God, I pray that we would allow for in our lives supernatural provision and life. I have to ask you, God, that we be a people used of you. God, if it's in the church, it's in the church. If it's in the body, it's in the body. If it's where we work, it's where we work. If it's on the street, it's on the street. But God, we'd be used of you. And that we'd have an expectation of a supernatural life. Forgive us for being so dull. Forgive us for being closed-minded. Forgive us for ignoring your hand. And I pray, God, that you would open up our eyes and our ears and our hearts and our minds to see you more and more and more. give you thanks tonight. We'll give you thanks. Pray God that you created us a faithfulness. I pray God that you created us a teaching heart. I pray God that, that we would be a people of prayer. I ask you God to be a people of service. Of you and one another. And of the world that we live in. And if it's time to suffer we'd do so with a joy in our hearts. We're talking supernatural life. I pray that you'd have your way in us and through us. We give you thanks tonight. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. UCF of Syracuse is a relational gathering of diversity in action. Economics, education, employment, background, and culture span the spectrum as we gather for the purpose of life in Christ. No, me and Christ are homies. That's good. He's really cool, you mm -hmm. know? He's super close, yo. Your homeboy? Yeah. All right. Anyways, so musicians, writers, painters. You know, my cousin's a painter. Yeah? What do you paint? Houses. Oh, man. My cousin, your cousin should hook up. Yeah. So, yeah, painters and other artists express their work through the body of life of this faith community. Like the community that. Yeah, so there's a lot of people. Yeah. No. Started in 1997. That's a long time ago, yo. That's back in the day. That was before I had my eyebrows tattooed on there. I remember that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As an outgrowth of chaplaincy of Syracuse University, UCF continues to gather in the Westcott neighborhood of Syracuse. Oh, me and my homegirls, we walk up and down there all the time. I know, that's our hood. Mm hmm. So it's in Syracuse, New York, to share the love and hope of Christ. Again, we, we homies. You're home yeah.